0: Colossians chapter three, verse eighteen through chapter four, verse one. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's Word.
1: Amen. What a passage! This is a good reason why we preach through the whole Council of God, Book. By book, so we don't skip any of the important parts. Would you pray with me? Father, we are laid bare before your word. Your word searches us. You know us, Lord, and so now we pray you would speak to us by it. Your Holy Spirit would convict us and change us. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, as a pastor, sometimes I receive some interesting and memorable comments from well-meaning people. And some of those comments stick with me for a while. So a couple years ago, one man that I met, after we exchanged the obligatory, who are you? First question we asked was, what do you do? Because that's typically what guys do. They just ask one another, what do you do? My wife can't understand this. Why guys do that. But guys ask, what do you do? And after he found out that I was a pastor, he said something very genuinely. He said, well, so you work on Sundays, but what do you do the rest of the week? (laughs) And apparently he thought pastors only work one day per week. Well, if if we're honest, it's easy to have the same paradigm in our minds when it comes to our faith. We may come to church on Sunday and we wonder, how does this impact the rest of my week? You may be facing things right now in your life that are so burdensome, so difficult, that you can't understand how God's word would actually speak to those very situations in your home life and in your work life. Well, if that's you this morning, this is precisely the passage for you because this text speaks to us right where we're at. In our living rooms and in our homes, in our everyday relationships. I wonder if you've heard the phrase, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Well, according to the New Testament, this kind of phraseology should never occur because it's precisely the opposite. To be the most earthly good, to do the most good here on earth, you must be heavenly minded. So Paul says at the beginning of chapter 3 in Colossians, we're commanded to set our minds on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if we've been rescued by Jesus Christ, if we have trusted in him, we need to grow into this identity. As we set our minds on the things above, we need to become who we are. When we first come to Christ, we're like my three-year-old son, walking around in my size 13 shoes. There's a lot of room to grow. Well, as we continue on in chapter 3, Paul reminds us that in order to walk with Christ, we must put to death whatever is earthly within us. Meaning, whatever is lingering from our old sinful nature. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know the struggle with the old nature, how the desires wage war against your souls. To help us fight against this defeated enemy, earlier in chapter 3, Paul calls us to put off things like sexual immorality, or coveting others' possessions, or lying, or speaking behind one another's back. And at the same time, we're told to put on things like kindness and patience and forgiveness and love, all while the word of God, letting the word of God dwell within us richly, letting the word of God do its work in our lives. And then right before our passage, we come to this verse in verse 17 that is really important to help us understand what God is saying to us. Speaking to the entire church, Paul says in verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means that whatever season of life you find yourself in, whatever circumstances you are facing today, whatever you're called to do, you are called to do everything in Jesus' name. Meaning, You're to do it as if Jesus himself were doing it, in his character, in his manner, the way that he would like it done. This is an important lead-in because now Paul gets to these household codes, these specific commands about how our identity with Christ should impact the closest, most important relationships that we have. And we need to know that we need to approach these things with the mind of Christ, So the overarching theme in our passage this morning is the lordship of Christ. Meaning if we're trusting in him, then he is our master. Our lives are not our own. We belong to him and we must serve him with our lives. According to his plan, not according to ours. And it's within that framework that the main call of this passage comes directly to us. Which is this. To serve Jesus as Lord by following his blueprint for our everyday relationships. We're called to serve Jesus as Lord by following his blueprint for everyday relationships. And this text dives straight into the heart of our personal lives. It comes into our living rooms and shines light into our workplaces. It shows us how we're to follow Christ in these areas. And the text is organized around three commands... Three sets of commands, and those commands will show us how we can practically serve Jesus in our everyday lives. So first, we're called to serve Jesus as Lord in marriage. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Next, we're called to serve Jesus in family life. We see that in verses 20 and 21. And then third, we're called to serve Jesus as Lord of our work. We see that in verse 22 to the beginning of chapter 4 there. So let's first consider how we're called to serve Jesus as Lord in marriage. It's been said we can't hide who we really are at home. To this end, the great scholar F.F. Bruce said this, It is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will be manifest, if at all. Translation? What we truly believe will come out at home and in the relationships most close to us. What we truly believe will come out in our most intimate relationships. And in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, Paul now turns his attention to the most intimate of all earthly relationships, the marriage relationship. Where he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And he couples that with husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, perhaps no verses in all the New Testament have created more angst or have been more misunderstood than these very verses. Yes, you heard it correctly. Paul called his wife, calls wives to submit to their husbands. Well, Dr. Doug Moo, who I see is sitting right over there. He's a New Testament scholar. And uh, hopefully, I get this right, Dr. Mu. But uh, he defines submission helpfully as a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. This definition assumes two things. First, that submission is a choice, it's willing, it's a willing choice. And second, that someone is designated as the leader. You don't submit. To somebody, if you're not submitting to someone who is your leader, so in the context of this verse, that means that wives are calling are called to voluntarily put themselves under the leadership leadership of their husbands. To flesh out what this means, I think we first need to understand what submission does not mean before we can go into what it does mean. First, what it does not mean: submission is not a statement about value. Or ability, It doesn't mean that the husband is somehow more important or somehow better in God's eyes. It doesn't mean that the wife is unequal to her husband. Just as we would never say that Jesus is unequal to God the Father when he was submitting to his Father's will all the time when he was here on earth. Submission is about role. It's not about value. So first, submission is not a statement about value or ability. Second, submission does not equal unquestioned obedience. Wives, this means your husband is not your master. You have one master, and that is Jesus Christ himself. That means if you are being asked to do something that contradicts your allegiance to Jesus, you must follow him, not your husband. That would include speaking up to others if your husband is asking you to do something sinful or abusing you in some way. You need to seek help in that. You don't need to submit under that. Submission does not mean that you should be a doormat while your husband makes all the decisions. You are co-equals and he needs your voice in the relationship. On the flip side, husbands, remember that this command for your wives to submit to, your hu- to their husbands comes from Jesus himself. That means if you find yourself quoting this verse to your wives, you should stop right then. Ben, just like Ben said last week, just stop it. That, that's, just stop it. Well, if that's what submission does not mean, then what does it look like in marriage? Well, wives, this means that you will willingly support and encourage your husband's leadership. It means you will give him room to grow and even to fail in his God-given role. Submission also means that you acknowledge and embrace God's design for your marriage. Paul could have said many things to wives about marriage, but he chose this one. So, wives, if you fail to see submitting to your husband as an act of submission and obedience to your Savior, you're going to be tempted to go against his leadership and undermine it on every level. Well, there's so much more that we could say here, but unfortunately, we have to move on. The next command within marriage comes to husbands in verse 19. Husbands are called to love their wives and not be harsh, or it could be translated, not be embittered by them. Well, husbands, this is a high and mighty call. We learn from the book of Ephesians that this love, this call to love is not merely saying I love you or merely bringing flowers on Valentine's Day or writing a note to your wife, although I would encourage all of those things, rather it's a radical call To love your wife as Christ loved the church. That means you're called to sacrifice for your wife. Sacrifice your time, your interests, your will for hers. To provide an environment where she might be built up in her faith. That she might become all that God has intended her to become. In this environment, there is no room for passivity. There is no room for couch potato husbands. And there's no room for harshness. When I think of a picture of what sacrificial love within marriage looks like, I think back to the story of Robertson McQuilkin. You may know this story. Well, years ago, McQuilkin was the president of what is now Columbia International University. And his wife encountered Alzheimer's. And as she progressed in this disease, every time McQuilkin was away, she was alarmed and agitated and even angry. But whenever Robertson was right there with her, she was calm and even happy. And so Robertson made the difficult decision to quit his position. At the pinnacle of his career, eight years from retirement, he quit his job as president of the university to serve his wife. And during his resignation speech, Robertson said this, I haven't experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but one of the simplest and clearest decisions that I had to make was this one because circumstances dictated it. He went on to say, she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. He goes on to say, However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, but that I get to. I love her very dearly. And he starts to choke up. She's a delight. And it's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Friends, when we... Operate in our marriage according to God's designs—the self-sacrificial love and the submission. It's a beautiful thing. It's a dance. It's—it's it's living as God has intended us to live within marriage. But at this point, some of you may be thinking, "Well, that's great, Eric, uh, but you don't know my spouse. He or she is not a wonderful person. You don't know how difficult they are to le- live with. You're right. I don't know your situation." But God does. And He has still called you to operate within His framework. Why? Because marriage is unlike any other human relationship, in that it is a living picture of the gospel, of Christ and His church. It's illustrating for us in living color the relationship between Christ's loving sacrifice and the church's willing submission. Submission and self-sacrifice are at the heart of the gospel. So they're also at the heart of God's plan for marriage as a picture of that gospel. And when a husband and wife are fulfilling their God-given roles, as I mentioned, it's a beautiful thing and it's a wonderful dance. Well, so perhaps today you need to take a step back and remember God's design for your marriage, which is to show Christ to the world. He wants your marriage to glorify God. And I challenge you to re-listen to his voice this morning about your marriage, about your role in marriage. And ask him to give you the desire to fulfill that role. Because if you've been married any amount of time, you know that you need to re-up on this desire to fulfill that role in marriage. Sometimes on a constant basis. Well, some of you may be thinking, well, these verses don't even apply to me. Because you're unmarried, you've been divorced or widowed and lost the love of your life. Or your child, you're not old enough. Well, not so fast. Before disregarding these verses, if you hope to be married one day, you can prepare yourself right now for your God-given role in marriage. But if that's not you, you can use these verses to support and encourage others in their marriage. There's a lot of marriages here at College Church, and we need your support. The best thing you could do is to pray specifically for marriages in our church. Pray for them. We need the entire community here working together as a body to help us foster healthy marriages. Well, next, after addressing the need for the Colossian church to serve Jesus as Lord in marriage, Paul now turns his attention to the parent-child relationship in verses 21 and 22. And here we see our call to serve Christ as Lord in the home. So listen to the next pair of commands Paul gives. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. If you're a child here this morning, I'd ask you just to look up real quick. And stop coloring. Or if you're older, you're, you're like, I'm not coloring. What are you talking about? Just look up for a minute. Because these verses apply to you. You may have heard these verses From your parents and, and, you know, you're getting in trouble or something. It's like, hey, obey your parents. You know, that's what it says. But, But I want you to hear in a fresh way, children, your call from your Savior, Jesus Christ, to serve him. He's calling you to obey your parents in everything. And I know that sounds like a difficult thing to do. You may even think it's impossible to obey all the time. It can feel that way at times. You may be wondering if you need to obey rules that you don't understand or you disagree with. And and that's a fair question. It's understandable. But God gives us the reason why we need to obey in these verses. He says that obeying your parents pleases the Lord. You're commanded to obey because it is a way to serve and to follow and to please your Savior, Jesus Christ. In his wisdom, he has given you your parents. No matter how much you question that, he has given you your parents for this time in his love. Even though they're imperfect, he's given you them as his primary authority for you at this time in your life. So what does obedience look like? It means that you do what your parents say in your heart, being willing to let them give you direction. And let me make an important clarification. Now you follow Jesus above all and he's the one you need to obey. So if your parents in some strange circumstance told you to do something that God clearly doesn't want you to do, you need to go tell an adult or a pastor or somebody else and and let that be known. But that's a very unusual circumstance. In everything else, you must obey your parents. And by doing so, you will set the foundation for obeying all the others who will be in authority over you for the rest of your life. All of the teachers, all of your future bosses, the government, and police, all those people. Well, if you're living under your parents' roof today, a way to apply these verses is to obey right away. Do whatever your parents tell you right away, whether it's, to take out the garbage, to clean up your room, or to be home by a certain time, and when you're tempted to disobey that, when you're tempted to pretend you didn't hear that, which I did as a kid, and I know you do, because my kids do, then remember that when you obey, you're serving Jesus. You're serving and you're pleasing your Savior. And it might be helpful to remember that your parents are also under authority. And that's what we're getting to now. Jesus is their master as well. So it says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So parents, this is a call to you. In the first century, the father had total reign over the household. But nowadays, the mother and the father kind of share in the discipline. So this is for both parents. Parents, this means we're not to treat our kids harshly in such a way that they will... Uh, want to be, their will to obey will be quenched we should not discourage them so much that they just give up and uh, I, I don't speak for, as an expert on this I'm in the thick of parenting myself I, I feel in many times like a failure in this so I'm learning with you but no matter how tired we are no matter how frustrated we are no matter what our kids have done We are not allowed to treat them however we want because they're not ours. They belong to the Lord. So Paul Tripp says this helpfully in his parenting book. He says, good parenting, which does what God intends it to do, begins with this radical and humbling recognition that our children don't actually belong to us. Parents, maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe this needs to be a time of self-reflection or even repentance about how you've been treating your children. It could be a good time to reset. Well, if you don't have children, you can still serve families in this church by praying for us. I know we need prayer. The Channing family needs prayer. Others do as well. So think about how you might be able to help parents in their role. By maybe serving as a mentor to a young husband or wife. Maybe offering to babysit. If it's free, it's even better. And maybe just serving in the children's ministry so that some of the parents could get a break and come to the worship service. Or maybe it's by bringing a meal to a family In need. But even if you're not in the midst of parenting, this call is for you to support families in this body. Well, moving along from marriage to families, now in this next section, we see how to serve Jesus as Lord at work. And right off the bat, with the first word of verse 22, bondservants, some of your translations say slaves, which is a fair translation, we encounter what seems to be a dated, and culturally inappropriate language, you may be wondering, why is this even in the Bible? Well, Let me make a few brief comments about that. First, slavery in the first century did not parallel slavery that we think of in the 17th to 19th centuries. In the first century, slavery was at many times voluntary. It was not limited to one particular race. And sometimes slaves could even earn their freedom, which is a major difference with how it worked here in America. Furthermore, slavery was an economic protection for some individuals at a time where there wasn't much government intervention for the poor. And at this time in Colossae, as many as one in three people may have been slaves. We're not exactly sure. But with that said, there were still many abuses. There were still people that were forced into slavery. I'm not trying to paint slavery as a good picture. It was a common social structure at the time, but it was not good in that way. So Paul, in addressing slaves and their masters, he's not affirming this practice. Rather, he's showing Christians how they should act as they find themselves in this broken social structure. It may be helpful and instructive to note that the book of Philemon is all about Paul appealing to a slave owner named Philemon about his slave Onesimus. And he's appealing, many people think he's appealing for Philemon to release Onesimus now that he's become a believer. Well, all that to say is the Bible is not pro-slavery. And unfortunately, some people have used the Bible in that way. It is not pro-slavery. In fact, the abolition of the slave trade was largely due to people like William Wilberforce who used the Bible and the principles from the Bible to show that it was against slavery. Well, all that to say, all that caveat to say that in today's society, with slavery being illegal, the commands to slaves and their masters have the most direct parallel to our workplaces, And so that's where we're going to focus our attention. So in verse 22, Paul launches into the final set of commands in our passage. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You may have found that it's easy to do what we're supposed to be doing when someone's eyes are on us. You may find that if you've played sports or if you're in a classroom setting and the teacher's looking over your shoulder, you tend to do what you're supposed to do. Well, there's even a term for that. It's called the Hawthorne effect, based on studies done in the early 20th century at the Hawthorne Works factories right here in the Chicago area. And that research showed that when workers believed their employer was actively monitoring workplace conditions, the productivity there increased. Well, from these verses, we see that God wants us to operate according to the Hawthorne effect. But not to please our boss, but to please him, knowing that his eyes are always on us even when no one else is around, because he is watching. We're called to work not just to please someone else, not just to punch the clock, but rather all the time to please Jesus Christ. I wonder right now if you feel stuck in your vocation, whether you work at Starbucks or you work on the stock exchange, whether you're a homemaker or you're homebound. I don't know where you are in life, but I wonder if right now you feel stuck No matter what place you find yourself in work, we're called to work heartily as to the Lord. If we approach our work in this way, we can turn it into worship. Done unto God, no matter how boring or mundane. As a follower of Christ, the manner in which we perform our work should always be on our mind. So Dorothy Sayers said this about work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. The only Christian work is good work well done. So as you examine your vocational life, I wonder if you can say that you are working as unto the Lord himself. Or are you just getting by, putting in your time, wishing and daydreaming that you were doing something else. Remember, whatever you have to do, it's to do it for him. Where does the motivation for this type of work come from? We learn in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Friends, our motivation to always work for Jesus must be rooted in obtaining his pleasure and earning his reward. Here, when he says you will receive the inheritance as your reward, Paul isn't talking about the reward of salvation or the punishment of eternal judgment. Most likely, he's referring to the judgment seat of Christ that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 5.10 where that text says that all believers will receive what is due for us here on earth, what we have done here on earth, whether good or bad. And this should encourage us if we're working honestly in a place where our employer is doing corrupt things, where workers are cutting corners to get ahead. Friends, the reality is that God sees everything that we do. And he has the, dis- he has the ability to discipline or reward accordingly. And he shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're at the top of the chain or you're at the bottom. Well, sandwiched in between the promise of reward and the warning of punishment regarding our work, Paul reminds us again who our ultimate master is by saying, you are serving the Lord Christ. This could be literally translated as you are slaving for the Lord Christ or you are a slave of the Lord Christ. Friends, Jesus is a good master. He has rescued us from a life of slavery to sin. And as a good master, he calls us to obey him with our whole allegiance. And now our last verse here in our text says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul here is striking the same note he's been hitting over and over again. Even the masters who in this first century context would have complete authority over their slaves are called and reminded that they're under the Lord's authority. Application for today may be if you're a business owner, if you're in a position where others report to you, this is a word for you. Remembering that the Lord is your master in heaven and you're to treat your workers fairly and justly. Well, as we close, you may feel a little bit crushed by the weight of all these commands. You may be feeling unsure if you can obey them. Well, friends, if that is you, take heart knowing that the same one who rescued you is the one who will empower you to obey And these are not commands that we must master at one time and then move on. They're commands we always need to come back to, sometimes daily, sometimes twice a day. And they require our daily attention and they require the Holy Spirit's power within us. Well, what does it look like to serve Christ Monday through Saturday? If you're having a hard time connecting those things, come back to this text Reread this text, meditate upon it, because as disciples of Jesus Christ, he longs to transform our entire lives, our marriages, our family lives, and how we work. When he was on earth, Jesus made it very clear, you can only serve one master. So I'd ask you this morning, is Jesus Christ your master? If not, the call to you is to come to him. Trust in him. Repent of your sin and believe in him. But if so, are you living as if he is your master? Let's do so today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you care about every detail of our lives. And Lord, I pray that You would speak to each one of us as we think about our marriages, our family life, and our workplaces. Show us how we can obey you. Show us how we can make you Lord of our lives. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have rescued us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.